He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. We give you more news than you can get anywhere. And, Lydia, I heard some breaking news. Breaking news. WABC. And the man with that breaking news is Governor David Patterson. What do you have for us, Governor? Well, I issued a statement today supporting Governor, uh, wow, Governor Hochul's nomination of uh, Hector LaSalle to the uh, to be the chief judge of the Court of Appeals. <clears throat> and I did that because it really seems to me that this is a man who is of Hispanic descent, who grew up in Suffolk County. And uh, because he is not a wild socialist, uh, he's unacceptable to uh, many of the senators. But the reality is that his voting record is not particularly conservative. It's very moderate. And um, I think that the senators are upset because a progressive wasn't chosen, not because he himself is uh, not progressive. And it's um, very unfortunate right now. So that kind of thing would go on. Uh, there have been 38 chief judges appointed to New York's Court of Appeals in hundreds of years by 10 governors who were uh, Republican and 28 by those who were Democrat. I appointed one myself. And I don't see any reason why this man can't serve. He's been outstanding at every level of the bench as he's moved up. And he's really a quite engaging person. I the chance to talk to him recently. Um, I actually sat next to him at a dinner about a month and a half ago. I never would have occurred to me that he'd be nominated. But I think right now, uh, if they're looking for support, they'll get it from me. Well, Governor Patterson, thank you so much. Uh, you, if you like, you could hold on. We're, gonna, we're going on to uh, uh, our uh, n- number one interview on Tuesdays. is uh, Professor, Alan, Professor Alan, Alan Dershowitz. If you would like to stay on, David. He's a leading, Professor Dershowitz, a leading constitutional attorney in the country, just a couple of decades at Harvard Law. Welcome back to Cats at Night. And your latest book, The Price of Principle? Well, thank you. I'm always happy to follow David Patterson, who's a a great, great guy, was a great governor, and comes from a great family. So thanks for having me on. Professor, Professor, uh, do you know this uh, uh, candidate for uh, the appeals court? I don't, except I know that all the courts of, around the world are getting politicized. Um, the Supreme Court of the United States is being politicized. I got an email today saying uh, from Democrats, please send money so we can pack the court. Elizabeth Warren wants to pack the court. We want four more justices, and we want to be able to pick them so that they vote the right way. Same thing's going on in Israel today. It's going on all over the country. Oh, all my over God. We're seeing the courts being politicized. I don't know this guy, but if he is – a down, a middle, even if he's conservative, if he obeys the rule of law and he's a good judge, there shouldn't be opposition to him because he's not a progressive. We don't judge people's progressiveness when we, it comes to nomination. We have in, also in the studio, because of the breaking news, I, ne- I neglected to, uh, to, to uh, talk about them. We got Judge Richard Weinberg and, and Rudy Washington uh, was deputy mayor under uh, Rudy Giuliani. And you guys know uh, Judge LaSalle at all? I don't know him personally, but I know a, a number of my former colleagues know him well. 
I think he's an excellent judge, a, a lovely man, very charming, very erudite. He's an excellent he's an excellent choice. But the problem, I think Professor Dershowitz hit it right, this politicalization of the process for nominees for judgeships is absolutely awful. They put in a list, Alan, of people who were acceptable to the progressives and were unacceptable, and uh, LaSalle was on the unacceptable list. That's no way to, to pick judges. I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. We're turning the courts into yet another political institution, and the courts are supposed to be above politics. Um, and, you know, there was a great story once when, when President Hoover – um, received the word that Oliver Wendell Holmes was going to retire, the greatest justice. And he asked his attorney general to give him a list of the 10 most qualified judges in America. The attorney general gave him a list, and Benjamin Cardoza of New York was on the bottom of the list. And Hoover turned to the attorney general and said, it's a great list, but you have it upside down. Uh, Cardoza should be on the top. And the attorney general said, no, he's Jewish. He's a Democrat. He's from New York. None of those fit the criteria I want. You already have a Jew. There are three New Yorkers. And Hoover said, I don't care. I want the best, most qualified person, even though I'm a Republican. He's a Democrat. And he appointed Cardozo, who served with great distinction. Oh, for those days again. Oh, if we could only get back to a time when judicial appointments were made on the merits rather than on the basis of politics. Yeah, Alan. Jesuits, I believe that President Nixon after he lost the uh, nomination of Clement Hainsworth, picked Harry Blackman, who was actually a very progressive judge on the Supreme Court. And, he turned um, out to be that way, but when he was first nominated, he was called one of the Minnesota Twins. Yes, yes. His nomination had been pushed by Warren Berger from Minnesota. And here you have a small state, relatively Minnesota, getting two Republican justices picked uh, on the court. And, of course, Blackman became Roe versus Wade, very progressive, very liberal, and somebody I knew uh, and respected enormously. I remember him and I taking a walk through the Harvard Yard one day after Roe versus Wade, and uh, he telling me he was more surprised than anybody else that he voted that way, that, you know, 10 years earlier, he wasn't sure he would have voted that way. But, you know, he's changed. He's grown. He said, you know, he was chief chief lawyer for the Mayo Clinic. So he saw medical care. He saw abortions. He had daughters. He had a wife. You know, he grew into the job and he changed his views. Was Roe versus Wade the greatest judicial decision ever written? No, it, you know, lacked a lot of logic. On the other hand, it just shows you that when you pick somebody to be a judge and he puts the robe on or she puts the robe on, they can change the matter. Professor, wasn't that true also for the Warren Court? Uh, Earl Warren. Earl never Warren. expected Earl You're Warren right. to be They never expected him to do that, right. right. And and he got that way, I read, uh, because his driver, who was African-American, drove him out to a meeting, and the meeting went on night. He spent the night, and when he came out, his driver was there, and he said, oh, how did you get here so soon? And his driver said, <clears throat> I never left because I had nowhere to sleep. Oh and, my God! And, yeah, and, and he said that really struck him real deep. Alan, you know, I wanted. I knew, I knew Earl Warren, yeah. and you know, there's one word to describe him. He was a real match. Yeah. He was just a person with tremendous amount of decency and concern. He cared about everybody. He knew the name. I was a law clerk when he was the chief justice. He knew the names of the law clerks, their wives, their children. 
he took us to football games. Uh, the, the Washington, those days, they had a different name than they have today. But um, uh, he was a he was a phenomenal guy, and uh, you know, in those days, the Supreme Court as well was somewhat less politicized. Alan, talking about the politicization, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts just issued his annual report, right. and he and the big issue that he raised was security for judges. Yeah. And part yeah. of the problem is, and Judge uh, Justice Alito raised this issue by leaking that draft opinion on the abortion case. Alito said they put a target on our backs. And this has become. We know that. We know that. We know that somebody came up to Kavanaugh's house with a machete and with weapons in order to kill him. And had he killed him, the vote would have been different on Roe versus on the overruling of Roe versus Wade. You know, sometimes tragically assassinations work. That's why I think the leaking of that decision was one of the worst things in the history of the Supreme Court. And we still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. And I suspect it's because. There are a lot of people who don't want to know the answer to that question. I think they know the answer, and they don't. And you're right; they don't want to release it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's going to happen. What's going to happen in Congress? Are we going to have a Speaker of the House? What do you think? Well, you know, John, you don't have to be a member of Congress to be Speaker. David, you're nominated. (laughs) I wanted John to be. I'm looking at CNN right now, and it's saying, according to them, breaking news, GOP hardliners discussing making motion to adjourn. So, yeah, well, they, they, they certainly won't get anything out of another vote. You know, went from 19 to 20. Who knows where it's going to go? Um, this is a real, uh, real deadlock. And when the framers of the Constitution created our checks and balances, I don't think they had in mind uh, this kind of deadlock. Um We've only had it half a dozen times in our history. And, you know, it could have easily happened on the Democrat side, too. There are as many Democrat radical leftists as there are radical rightists on the Republican Party. And that's what you're looking at right now. A situation where if the Democrats had a vote like this, you'd get the squad saying, no, we won't vote for Pelosi. But, you know, the Democrats managed to keep their act together a little bit better, to manage to hide their differences because Pelosi was generally much more acceptable to all sides. But both parties are inflicted with extremism on on the margins. Well, I constantly say extremism in any direction is not warranted. I I, I think in addition to the extremism, John, that one of the problems is that these people don't even know what they're voting for, Uh, and, and, and in some respects on both sides. Your leader is not the most extreme member of the party that gets attention by, um, uh, you know, attacking the other party. Your your leader is the negotiator. And apparently, though they want to uh, move McCarthy out, they haven't found someone who's acceptable to that other side and at the same time could be someone that could negotiate with the president and the majority leader of the Senate. You know, no, it's certainly not going to be Jim Jordan. Um, no, I, I think, not, I think, uh, uh, but, centrist. Professor, I think that it's going to be Steve Scalise. Well, he's everybody, everybody. I think Scalise is a little bit like uh, Sarah Lee Cake. You know, nobody doesn't right. like Sarah Lee. Uh-huh. And Scalise seems to have lower negatives than o- almost anybody. So he might be, might be the right compromise. Uh, Judge Weinberg, what what is the major issue that the GOP hardliners have against uh, McCarthy? Oh, it's all about personality. 
all about personality. So it's not it, policy, it's just personality. No, I think, I think they think he's that hard enough right, but I also think they didn't like the way he talked to them sometimes, which is too bad because sometimes you have to do a firm talking to. Nancy Pelosi was known for giving people stern conversations. Look, whatever you think of Nancy Pelosi's politics, uh, you, you have to admit she was a really good leader. And she kept the Democrats together, and that's like herding cats. And, um, you know, she's accomplished a lot. I disagreed with a lot of her policies. I thought she should never have posed with Elon O'Mara for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and other things like that. But on balance, I think she'll go down in history as a very solid Speaker of the House. Well, thank you so much, Professor Dershowitz, for always giving us your insight and your wisdom. And you sound much better. I know the last time you were on with us, you were a little under the weather. And thank you, Governor Patterson. But your nomination is in place for Speaker of the House. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'll whip some votes for you, uh, David. All right. (laughs) Well, Rudy, if you're with me, I've got a good shot. (laughs) Oh, who, Gallagher? We got Congressman Gallagher on the line for us right now. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, and uh, you're you're in the midst of all the action, sir. Tell us what's going on. Uh, tell us what the heck is going on, Congressman. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually off the House floor in the uh, the cloakroom here, looking at the floor. So we just had our, I think, it was our third vote for speaker, uh, and thus far, nobody's been able to get to the threshold of 218. There's a bunch of holdouts who won't vote for Kevin McCarthy, um, which I think is unfortunate uh, because uh, no one has done more to win the majority than Kevin McCarthy. Now, granted, we wanted a bigger majority. Got it. I wish we had a massive mandate for for change, but the American people just have delivered a different result, and so we got to restore some common sense. We're not going to get 100% of what we want, but we can start to shift the country in a better direction. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, there's been, over the past two months, McCarthy has bent over backwards to meet uh, some of these members uh, halfway in terms of the rules changes that they're uh, demanding. Has been very generous uh, on that front. So again, you know, this is the people's house. It's messy. It's chaotic by design. Nobody's going to get 100 percent of what they want, especially in divided government. But we can't waste more time on this stuff. We got work to do. I mean, we got a we got a ton of issues, basic oversight issues of the Biden administration. We got to tackle on every moment we spend on this internal food fight is a moment we're not spending on basic <laughs> oversight and restoring our constitutional governance. You can't, uh, Congressman Judge Richard Weinberg, you can't even organize the body. You can't swear in your members. You can't appoint committee chairs. You can't hire staff. You can't set an agenda. I mean, much needed time is being wasted. Any, any pulse of what do you think we're going from here? Uh, you know, we're going to keep voting. Um, we're going to keep voting until, uh, uh, and so we get a speaker. Kevin is not backing down. He's going to continue to to fight, and um, I, I'm, I'm glad he is. Uh, so I, I think his detractors have to recognize that there isn't a plan B here. We got to come together. And, and, and to the point you made, yes, I mean we can't do we can't do uh, anything until um, until we have a speaker. We can't form committees, right? I, I'm being asked to uh, chair the select committee. On China, I, I can't get my members, I can't get my staff in place, uh, I can't do anything until we have a speaker, until we pass a rules package instantiating the committee. So well, it really grinds the basic function of Congress to a halt. Congressman, this Rudy Washington, is this going to reach the end of the week or this be resolved by tomorrow or Thursday? 
You know, I don't know. I, I think we're going to keep voting tonight. There's now a motion to adjourn that we were just advised of. Uh, I think, you know, the Democrats, ironically, it's the Democrats working with the holdouts right now on the motion uh, on the idea that we're going to adjourn and not settle this, uh, which is unfortunate. But, you know, we're, we're here to do a job. So I suggest we stay here as, as long as it takes to to get this settled so we can start. Yeah, well, the, Demo- the Democrats would love to see this chaos go on. Um, so well, they- yeah, they got their popcorn out right now. Exactly. They're enjoying it. I mean, exactly. they're cheering every time someone votes for someone. Now, I don't know so. if you want to answer this question or not, but <laughs> who do you think's going to blink first? Uh, will McCarthy say for the good of the country, I'm withdrawing? Or will the, the right wing of the Republican Party say, you know, this is not healthy. We got to put it into this. Somebody's going to, yeah, somebody got to blink. Yeah, I think the, the holdouts have to recognize that they've already gotten a ton of concessions, right? So they, 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 we walked through all the rules changes this morning, and then it's an amazing list of rules changes. So for those who are concerned about the fact that under Pelosi's leadership, this institution has really been a joke, there's been no regular order, members have been silenced, I mean, proxy voting nonsense is going on. Um, you know, McCarthy is the only one who's laid out a plan for actually fixing that. And uh, that's what I think the holdouts need to recognize. Again, we are speaking with uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin. Uh, Tell us, Congressman, what is the issue that the right wing of the Republican Party have with McCarthy? Is it policy? Is it personality? Is he not hard right enough? You know, I thought it was a matter of just the rules. Uh, but the more they proposed rules changes and the more McCarthy then accepted those changes or met them halfway, they kept making additional demands. So I've, I've concluded that it may not be about the rules and more about the, the personality. Uh, they, they think that a, a different personality in the speakership is going to meaningfully change the outcome. I, I would tell you that the speaker is important for sure, but more important than who the speaker is, is the process through which we do our day-to-day job. And that's why I have confidence, having seen the process that McCarthy has already committed to, that we are going to operate in a sane, fiscally conservative, smart but strong manner in the next Congress. Uh, if we if we play by the rules that he's laid out and if we march in the general direction of the vision that McCarthy laid out in the commitment to America, and nobody can say that they've laid out a more comprehensive vision than that which McCarthy laid out in the commitment to America. So, uh, you know, I, 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 regrettably, I think um, I, I think it's more about personality uh, than it is about uh, rules or process at this point. Congressman, I, I'm deeply, I'm the House Democrat, but I have to tell you, I'm deeply troubled by the fact that the Republicans are showing that they don't have the ability to govern and to be responsible grown-ups, and we need a check and balance against the excesses of the left wing of the Democratic Party. And the Republican Party should be doing that, and they're not doing that. They're failing in this opportunity. But, Judge, there's only one day, though. There's only one what? Day that we're going through this. This this will be settled. This will be settled very shortly. Within a day or two, it will be settled. Maybe they're just putting on a show. No, I, I think they're true believers. I wish they were putting on a show. I think they're true believers. Congressman Gallagher, what do you think? Well, I hope it's just a day. Um, I don't want to waste another day, uh, let alone a week or our first month in Congress, 
on this. Um, you know, I've been my, I've just been flooded with emails and texts from constituents all over the spectrum, by the way, saying, hey, you guys got to get your act together. You got to you got to come together. And again, we're going into divided government. Right. So we're not there's not going to be a transformation of the federal government along the lines that a lot of, you know, hardcore members want to see over the next two years. But we do have an opportunity to pull the emergency brake on some of the craziness we've seen the last two years. Again, shift the power back from the executive branch to the legislative branch to basic oversight, blocking, and tackling. I recognize that's not as sexy as some of the other promises, but that's that's what being in Congress is. It's the hard day-to-day work that doesn't get attention. And, again, every moment we're not spending on that is a moment lost. Yeah, because I want to see them claw back those 84,000 <laughs> IRS. 87,000. 87, I want to put them on the border. Don't you want to put Put them on the border. So Get con- out of the Congressman IRS. Gallagher, what's uh, first on the agenda? Eighty-seven thousand IRS agents, more border security. What are you? What do you propose? We were we were supposed to vote on the on clawing back the eighty-seven thousand IRS agents tonight, but I don't think we're going to do it if we keep up with this. So that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> and then tomorrow we're going to have a vote on the rules package, which we create the Select Committee on China, which is going to be a key part of the next Congress. So those are the, the two biggest things to watch for in the next 24 hours. But we all it, it all comes back to getting past the speaker vote. Can't anybody talk common sense to these people? Uh, you know, there's varying uh, sort of personalities in the bunch. Uh, again, I, I just I thought that with some of the compromises on the rules changes that they would be persuaded, but the goalposts seem to keep changing and uh i don't know uh, maybe they're getting more dug in uh, maybe it's getting personal right now you just don't want here's the other thing i'm worried about we we adjourn and then everybody goes in front of the camera and starts saying stuff and by the way you know as much as the democrats are eating this up the legacy media is eating this whole thing up i mean you know they're they're, they're loving they got they got a, an extra large bucket of popcorn Outfit. They're literally sitting up in the gallery, gazing down on this, and I can see the smiles on their faces. So you don't want people to go out there, say a bunch of stuff on the media that you know that gets everybody more riled up, and then it becomes personal. Then it becomes you know emotion based as opposed to what's best for the next Congress and what can we actually get done. What's best for the country? Yeah, I was listening to the congressman from Texas. Uh, his name escapes me, but he was basically down on the, the extreme group that the demands they were making were so petty. But then when I heard some of the demands, I realized very quickly it wasn't about um, policy. This is personal. Yeah. And then you wonder, are they any better than the squad at this point? They're like the right-wing version of the squad that are so divisive in their rhetoric and their actions. As John has said very well, any anything taken any to the extreme. extreme extremism in any direction is, is bad. Is bad. Absolutely. Uh, Congressman Gallagher, yeah. what do you think? Well, listen, I, I would say this: the, the, we got to make a distinction between the squad. Directionally, the squad wants to take us in just an absolute crazy place, take the country over the cliff. I, I think the irony and tragedy of what's happening now is there's a lot of members of the Supreme Caucus who directionally, I get it, right? I want to go in that same direction. I want it to dramatically reduce the size of the federal government. I want to restore fiscal sanity. I want to, you know, restore the powers of the legislative branch. I don't want massive omnibus bills that nobody's read jammed down our throats on, on Christmas Eve. I get it. I want all those things. But it's a question of how quickly can you march in that direction? Because, you know, the speaker is a tough job. It's not, it's not just the Freedom Caucus he's dealing with. He's got moderates. He's got everybody in between. you got to figure out 
what the long pole in the tent is. And again, nobody's going to get 100% of what they want. So we all, it, you know, it, it's like we all want the same thing. It's just a question of tactically, how do we get there, if that makes sense. And for the record, everyone, I don't think the squad is anywhere near as on the same level as the Freedom Caucus, because he's right. They, they want to derail democracy. They want to derail our government. They're socialists or communists. I, I see what the Freedom Caucus and what they're trying to do. But like to your point, Congressman Gallagher, you've got the legacy media. They're painting the Republicans in this bad light. I'm looking at my TV screens now and they're doing the up close uh, you see the zooms of the like people looking like they're arguing and, you know, people sitting at home. They're just like, oh, look, the Republicans, they can't even get along with each other. Never mind. Run the country effectively. Lydia, that's why I said somebody has to blink. Somebody's going to yeah. blink in the next day or two. Shouldn't it should not be Kevin McCarthy. He's earned the speakership. You wouldn't have a majority in the House. If not McCarthy, McCarthy then who? I, I told you yeah, what I no thought. Plan. What no do you plan. think, Congressman? Who? There was no plan B, you know, and again, to your point, John, I mean, nobody did more to win the majority than Kevin McCarthy. I want a bigger majority for sure, but I am darn glad that we at least have control of one chamber of Congress, because that's the only thing right now standing in the way of the Biden administration going even further on some of this woke progressive nonsense that we've seen over the last two years. So. Uh, we got to make the most of that. We're, we're, we're not we're not going to have, you know, if we get the, the White House and we get both chambers come 2024, hey, I'm all for, you know, massive, massive change. But in divided government, you got to be a little bit more practical given the narrow majority we have. And we got to stick together. We got to find a way to stick together as a caucus. Otherwise, we're effectively putting the Democrats back in charge of the House. Uh, even though we won the election. Right. Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, we have a minute left. What else do you want to tell the American people? I, You know, if we get past this, uh, we are really going to pour a ton of energy into the Select Committee on China, as I've talked about multiple times on your show. Uh, I think our greatest uh, challenge in general and certainly our greatest foreign policy challenge is, you know, a rising China and the threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses. And so we're going to be looking deeply into how do we reduce our dependency on China, how do we rebuild and modernize our military to deter war over uh, Taiwan? And how do we make sure that China isn't expanding their influence here domestically? So that's going to be my top priority in the next Congress. Sounds like a lot of great priorities there. Thank you so much, Congressman Gallagher. And we wish you the best of luck. And keep us posted. Give us a call. you got our producer's number and let us know. And right now we're going, to, we're going to be taking a break. And we're going to be uh, finding out from Lou Dobbs how the market went. <laughs> sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show in studio. Of course, John Katsimatidis. Judge Weinberg is back from his uh, long overdue vacation. I was on this show twice last week. I know, but no, but you deserve a vacation. You deserve a vacation. You work your butt off all morning, all night, all all afternoon. You name it. You miss me. I do. And that's Rudy Washington. (laughs) So we got the latest. McCarthy again. He lost the third round, and the House adjourning until tomorrow. Boy, we just had Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin on. and He's calling right from the floor. Absolutely. And he's supporting McCarthy. And we shall see what will happen. And you're saying, Rudy Washington, that Scalise. That's, that's who I think the dark horse is. But, hey, I give Hakeem a check mark. Hakeem Jeffries. Yes. Because, you know, this is what the Democrats would want, an adjournment. 
You know, mm-hmm. and he probably they probably were, yeah they were working in the background to get of it. Of course, because this makes the Republicans look like children that exactly. they can't govern. Exactly. So I give the new leader of the Democratic Party a check. Who do we have on now, uh, Richard? We're getting uh, John Funds on the line with us. John Fund, if he's coming on the line, and uh, he uh, he's he used to be with the Wall Street Journal, and now he's with National Review. He's one smart guy. He's uh, currently the national affairs reporter for the National Review Online and a senior editor at the American Spectator. We got John Fund on the line. All right, John Fund, welcome back to Cats at Night. Hello. So what do you think about this gavel battle about McCarthy losing his third rounds and now the House adjourning for the evening? Well, the answer is very simple. Uh, Kevin McCarthy kept losing votes. And he's going to try to browbeat members now and offer them more than he's already has. But, you know, when you show weakness three times, uh, basically people gang up on you. Because how how vigorous a speaker can he be? How trusted can he be? How much can he leave the House if he's lost the confidence of his members three times in a row? So what's plan B? Well, plan B will be there'll be a lot of late-night meetings in Washington uh, among members of Congress, and I think the simple solution will be McCarthy's deputy, who was his hand-picked deputy, Steve Scalise, but who was more trusted than McCarthy of bond of the members. I think Steve Scalise will ultimately become the speaker. Wow, that's what Rudy Washington is saying. He's a former deputy great mayor mind. under uh, Mayor Giuliani, so great minds uh, think alike. Great, why? Great, exactly. Why? Why Scalise? I know Rudy was telling us it's and you know Professor Dershowitz. We also had on the line. It's like everybody loves Sara Lee, everybody loves Entenmann's, and no one seems to have a problem with Scalise. John Fund. Why do you think Scalise is the right person for Speaker? Because he doesn't lie like Kevin McCarthy does. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> Tell us how you really That's a feel. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not a feel. It's a fact of life. Kevin McCarthy, I've known Kevin McCarthy for 25 years. Uh, we've never had a problem. Um, he's been a, a good source for me. Uh, he's been, I think, a very skillful, tactical minority leader. He raised a bunch of money. Uh, I think he was a worthy foe of Nancy Pelosi. But in his personal dealings with members, he would often tell them things that he didn't turn out to be accurate or true. And he would renege on promises. And in other words, blind ambition will send you in directions, ethical directions that people remember. So John- Too many people have been lied to by Kevin McCarthy personally. And I think it accumulated to where we are now. Yeah, a lot John, of people don't John it's, uh, it's uh, Richard Weinberg. I, I've been saying all along, I don't think this is about policy. I think this is about personality. So your conclusion is the same. Is that correct? But then when you have a bad personality well, and you lie to people, it leads to bad policy. Sorry, John Fund. Well, remember, Kevin McCarthy has no policy. I, I've known Kevin McCarthy for 25 years. His belief system is, are you ready? I'm Kevin ready. Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Well, yeah. His belief system is, say it again, John Fund. Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> that's his belief system. Why well, is he different than any other politician? Well, oh, no, no. There, there are degrees of everything. Well, John Most Fund, poli- thank you. And we'd like to have okay. a longer discussion next time. And, and, sure, uh, happy to. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. And now we got Art Piccolo on the line. You know him very well, John, Brooklyn right? Brooklyn Tech. Brooklyn Tech, class we of life. We were in the same classes want- together. What class? 96? You want to say what class? 
96. Well done. Yeah, 96. <laughs> Sounds good to me, John. Yeah. T- we'll take it. Yeah, I was deputy mayor for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, our Piccolo, tell us about your recent column, call, your comments on uh, Mayor Adams. Tell, tell him who our Piccolo is. Besides oh, of being course. Our, Brooklyn Tech classes. He's a chairman of the Bowling Green Association and the co-founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Society. He's been active in Lower Manhattan, the area from City Hall, south of Battery. Um, and he is responsible for bringing Arturo Di Madoka's world-famous charging... Modica, excuse me, world's famous charging bull to Bowling Green back in 1989. That's all true, too. So, yes, my... um, I. The Times published on New Year's Eve a lengthy review of Mayor Adams' first year, and there were plenty of other publications who have done the same. And it's vaguely critical of the mayor, in my view, without being very specific. I think he has done an outstanding job in his first year. There is, in fact, a reference to Bowling Green buried in the article, where there is an implied criticism of the mayor for last year coming to Bowling Green 17 or more times, which he did do. He came to raise the flags of various nations, to fly beside the American flag here at the most historical place in New York City. It's five minutes from New York City. Whenever he comes, he spends just five or ten minutes here, makes a few comments, raises the flag. That's an example of the time saying that he's not spending his time well. The fact that this mayor has had a schedule all year long, every day, traveling throughout this city, all five boroughs, to me, is one of his great achievements. It's unlike any mayor in the past. This is the 21st century. His car and his phone and his computer are, in effect, his office. The idea that he, in the 21st century, needs to sit behind his desk all day at City Hall and make calls is nonsense. I'm very positive in his first year. He more than anyone else has said, he needs and wants to do more during 2023. And yes, let's hold them to that standard. Art, it's, uh, it's Richard Weinberg. You said in your comments that uh, Eric Adams has been a strong and effective leader. Would you tell our listeners why you think he's been a strong and effective leader? He's been a strong and leader because he basically has represented the city so well. He has not, he has not shied away from any of the issues, from crimes or homelessness or anything else. He stands up proudly, representing all of us with a very positive message about the future of New York City. I think that's one of the principal responsibility of the meters, to be the leaders of of the mayor to be a leader is to be a very effective communicator for the city. And he has done that, I think, very well. In fact, in a way that no other mayor ever before him ever has. Well, I think, uh, I think Ed Koch was an effective leader and he, he was a messenger for this, this city. I think uh, Giuliani was an effective leader and I think Bloomberg was as well. I mean, I, but I think I haven't said any of them have not been. I'm just giving a positive view of Adams, also, if you want to put him in that category, that's fine with me. So what do you see the future for Eric Adams and the city? Well, I see the fact that I think he needs to do even more. Obviously, I think he ha- he's going to be judged on his four years as mayor um, when he tries to run and most likely for mayor in 2026. What has he done over those four years? I think he started a process that he has to continue to develop in the future. In terms of, I've had discussions, brief discussions with him at Bowling Green, and also communicate him in other ways. I think that what he 
does not necessarily appreciate. If he wants to be the greatest mayor in New York City history, he needs to create, recreate New York City government. We need a fundamentally different kind of city government than we've had in the in the last century, this bureaucratic base. I'm trying to convince him that he should start a process of appointing an assistant to the mayor in every single New York City community or neighborhood. We can, we can discuss what's the exact number, but I think it's in the range of 100 identifiable individual neighborhoods and communities. We have 8.4 million New Yorkers, all right? If you divide that into 100, that's 840,000. Only 16 cities in the United States have more than 840,000 residents. This is 100 times larger than all the other cities in the city. I think he needs to break it down where he has his own eyes and ears, specific individual with a small staff that basically reports directly to him, and he basically motivates them to be the, in effect, assistant mayor to the mayor in that community. That will take a number of years uh, to we, accomplish throughout the city. We have to take a break. Well, Art okay. Piccolo, thank you so much for coming on. But, thank you. Uh, and we'll talk to, to talk, talk to you again to, uh, real soon about uh, some more things. Sounds good. Thank you, John. Thank you. And before we go to that break, I think there's some breaking news. First of all, the, the House has adjourned. And second of all, what else happened? Something else happened. Well, we'll, we'll let you know when we come back. Uh, we, when we come back, we got Peter King. Well, with us today is uh, Peter King, Congressman Peter King, and maybe he could tell us what the heck is going on. By the way, there's some breaking news, and I want to ask Congressman King, whom does he believe? The breaking news is McCarthy uh, claims that Matt Getz told him he wouldn't care if the Speaker's stalemate ends up in the Democrats leading the House. Hmm. What say you, Congressman King? I say I would believe anyone before Matt Gates. Matt Gates is a disgrace to the Congress, and why anyone is listening to him and taking him seriously is beyond me. He just barely survived a sex trafficking investigation. Uh, I, I, I can't think of one positive thing he's done since he's gone to Congress. And that, to me, the biggest problem about what's happening today is you have less than 10 percent of the Republican Party is tying up the entire Congress. The ten, uh, less than 10 percent of the uh, Republicans, less than 5 percent of the entire Congress. And yet they are really, to me, this is a dangerous thing. If you can allow such a small group, and virtually none of them have done anything in the House, allow a small group like that to stop the election of a speaker. There's a reason why it's only been done once in the last 150 years, is that generally we have a two-party system, and each party selects its own leader, each, and then the majority party selects the speaker. Okay. And the only time since the Civil War was in 1923 where, where the, the, uh, any small group tried to stop you know, the selection of the majority. Kevin, Kevin uh, McCarthy has the support of, again, 90 percent of his members. And okay. listen, I don't always agree with Kevin McCarthy, but he is the guy when he came in after Donald Trump lost his elections in 2018. We lost the House because of Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy in 2020 won back like 15 or 20 seats. This year, he brought us back into the majority. Again, as you're perfectly to know, but he's better than anyone else that's out there. Now, you mentioned Steve Scalise. Steve Scalise is a great guy. And if it was a choice between the two of them, I could go with either one. But the party has chosen Kevin McCarthy. And that has to mean something. Otherwise, yeah, 90% of the party is chosen Kevin McCarthy, and, well, and they should go with 90% of the party. Well, John, Pete, um, this is Rudy. Yeah. 
Yeah, how you doing, ex- Explain to us uh, how would it be possible for the Democrats to get control? Uh, walk us through a scenario so that our listeners can understand yeah. what that statement means. Uh, you have to get 218 votes to become the speaker. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, every ballot is getting 212. By the way, I like Hakeem. Uh, to me, he's the best the uh, Democrats could have selected. He has 212. All he has to do is get six or seven Republicans who are so fed up to vote for him, and he becomes the speaker. And, Peter, it's, it's, it's Richard Weinberg. And another way of doing it is you vote a resolution to make it a plurality election, which they could do. The rules allow for that. And if you had a plurality rather than a majority, then Hakeem would definitely become the speaker. Yeah, he would on that. You know, the Democrats did this back in the 1960s when they had their fight and they had ended up the Republicans ended up electing the Democratic speaker that. Yeah, and also, I believe the majority leader was elected by the uh, Republicans, even though the Democrats had the most uh, votes. You had a coalition of Democrats and Republicans came together. So, but to me, that's, listen, we, once we get into that, then we're going to get nothing done in Washington. And I think, listen, people say that you know, Kevin McCarthy is making concessions to Democrats, and that's why they're against him. Right now, you have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate. You, the best Republicans can do is stop as much as they can of the Biden administration, and then you fight for all you can get. But no matter what it is, the final product is going to have to include things that the Democrats want. We don't control everything. And yet, so they're basically saying that Kevin McCarthy should agree to nothing, and also they want him to agree to shut the government down if Republicans don't get what they want. Well, you can't get all you want when you're in the minority, and we're never going to get back into the majority if we just look, get looked upon as an obstructionist party. Like I said, I have had disagreements with Kevin McCarthy over certain issues, but he is the one who was the leader of the party who brought us from minority to majority, and I heard John Fun say that, that Kevin I was just going to uh, ask you about that. McCarthy is a liar. I've I've never heard that. Listen, uh, he's always kept his word with me. When we disagreed, we disagreed. When he agreed, we agreed. And he always, but he always kept his word. And he wouldn't have the support of ninety percent or ninety-two percent, whatever it is, of the Republican members of Congress if he was known to be a liar. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Congressman King. As always, we see look forward. Tomorrow. Yes, see, see, you tomorrow. see you tomorrow. We're, we're yeah, going to find out from uh, Dr. Mihalos now if uh, we're going to live or die. <laughs> He'll know. Stand by to find out if we're living or dying. So there. By the way, the breaking news was seventy percent of what was it? Which city? Which country? Shanghai. Shanghai Shanghai. has COVID. Seventy percent. Doctor Mikolos, take it away. Tell us what the heck is going on. Seventy percent of Shanghai has COVID. Seventy percent of twenty-five million people are infected. That's a lot of people. The problem is we don't have any information. There's no information currently being released on the variant and its genetic sequencing yet because that would be very helpful so that people making antibodies and antivirals can prepare. And severe uh, lockdowns and under-vaccinations in China have caused weak community immunity, and few people have really any antibodies to fight any infections. And the British health data firm Airfinity estimates that 5,000 people a day are dying in China, the hospitals and crematoriums are overwhelmed, and there's also many doctors and nurses that are getting sick, and they're unable to uh, perform their duties. So when you look at the numbers, it's really uh, 96% of the cases are mild to moderate cases, but 4% are severe cases, and 4% of 25 million will quickly overwhelm any hospital system, because as we learned from our own COVID experience, ICU beds are limited worldwide, 
And in 2020, we found that out in the United States when we cut uh, hospital beds, especially in the New York uh, area when we tried to save money about 20 years ago. But uh, fortunately, uh, there are antivirals. The problem is that uh, Paxlovid was approved in China about a year ago, but it cost $426. People assume that in China that there's some kind of a government program or free care. In China, if you don't have money, you don't really get care. In the United States, of course, of Paxlovid is around $530. So in China, you would have to come up with $426 for Paxlovid. The good news is four days ago, I think China is realizing that they have to approve more drugs. So they did approve Levegrio, which is also known as Malnupiravir, which is a, uh, a drug made in uh, New Jersey at Merck. And uh, hopefully they'll be able to get that out. In the United States right now, we're dealing with this XB115. But fortunately, we have a lot of vaccines and we also have a good amount of herd immunity because it really burned through us, especially the Omicron variant. The good news for China is they did just publish in the New England Journal of Medicine a new antiviral called VV116. And they're claiming that uh, it is... Uh, it's better than Paxlovid. By one day, you get better faster and less side effects. So I'm hoping that that's true and they can just start mass producing it. But it does need larger uh, clinical trials and hopefully they'll uh, do emergency authorization. But we should try to mass produce these antivirals and drop the price and probably send it all over the world as a goodwill as Americans like we always used to do and helping the world so that people can see that we you know, we're inventing these things, we're producing them, and we can maybe try to distribute them just like we did with other drugs around the world to try to help save lives. But uh, this is a, you know, serious matter. The good news is that it seems like past pandemics, like the Spanish flu, the virus has become more contagious, but less lethal. And we're seeing that in our ICU situation in the United States, where people are getting diagnosed, getting antivirals right away, and they're getting better. And so only 10% of beds are filled, 10% of ICU beds are being filled with COVID patients, which is a good sign for us. So Dr. Mikolos, if someone comes down with COVID, a lot of times you test positive for COVID, the doctor says, ah, nothing I can do for you. And then if you get really bad, okay, maybe I'll get you some Paxlovid. Is that the best way to go? Because a lot of people... They did that to a few of my friends. Right. Or it's hard for them to go get the monoclonal antibodies. What is your advice for people that get COVID and, you know, they're afraid that they could get really sick from it? Yeah, well, sometimes, unfortunately, you have to go into a different community, just like I had a friend who was up near Westchester and wasn't able to get it. And I just told him, hey, come on down, you know, to Manhattan, this this, this, this urgent care center is giving it. Or, uh, you know, out in Long Island, there were certain places or certain pharmacies that you can get it because some of the small pharmacies don't really want to to give out COVID medicine. Why? Because they don't want their pharmacies filling up with COVID patients coming in. So it's only limited where you can get it. But there are the websites if you go on. So a they lot should of get Paxlovid. Large pharmacies. No, absolutely, because the antiviral drugs block, they block basically the they block the copying machine. So they, they hit every variant. How did we get out of AIDS 40 years later? There's no vaccine for vaccine for AIDS, but they've got an antiviral cocktail. The famous Dr. Ho is now up at Columbia University. He's the one who came up with the idea. Hit it from different angles, just like we do sometimes triple antibiotics or hybrid antibiotics. Combination drugs sometimes are more effective. And I think that's what's going to help us get out of this. And uh, thank God we're in America. Thank God for Operation Warp Speed that came up with all these antivirals. 
and uh, God willing, we'll get through this. Thank you, Dr. Michalos, and thank you for everything you do. And we all stand for what? Truth, Truth justice, justice, and, and the American, American way. way. God bless America. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.